Section 13 of Just 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just 16 by Susan Coolidge. A Balsam Pillow. Now that fir needles and hemlock needles have become recognized articles of commerce, and every other shop boasts its row of fragrant cushions with their inevitable motto, Give me of thy balm, O fir tree, I am reminded of the first pillow of the sort that I ever saw, and of what it meant to the girl who made it. I should like to tell you the little story, simple as it is. It belonged to the time, eight or nine years since, before pine pillows became popular. Perhaps Chateaubriand Dorset may be said, for once in her life, to have set a fashion. Yes, that was really her name. Her mother met with it in a newspaper, and, without the least idea as to where it appertained to man or woman, adopted it for her baby. The many syllables fascinated her, I suppose, and there was besides that odd joy in a piece of extravagance that costs nothing, which appeals to the thrifty New England nature, and is one of its wholesome outlets and indulgences. So the Methodist elder baptized the child Chateaubriand Araminthe, making very queer work of the unfamiliar accents, and then, so far as practical purposes are concerned, the name ceased to be. How can a busy household, with milk to set, and milk to skim, and pans to scald, and butter to make, and pigs to feed, find time for a name like that? Baby, the little girl was called, till she was well settled on her feet and in the use of her little tongue. Then she became Bree, and Bree Dorset she remained to the end. Few people recollected that she possessed any other name, unless the marriage, birth, and death pages of the family Bible happened to be under discussion. The Dorsets was one of those picturesque, lonely outlying farms, past which people drive in the summer, saying, How retired, how peaceful! but past which almost no one drives in the winter. It stood, with its environment of red barns and apple orchards, at the foot of a low granite cliff whose top was crowned with a fir wood, and two enormous elm-trees met over its roof and made a checkerwork of light and shade on its closely blinded front. No sign of life appeared to the city people who drew their horses in to admire the situation, except, perhaps, a hen scratching in the vegetable beds, or a lazy cat basking on the doorstep, and they would drive on, unconscious that behind the slats of the green blinds above a pair of eyes watched them go, and a hungry young heart contrasted their lot with its own. Hungry! There was never anything like the starvation which goes on sometimes in those shut-up farmhouses. Boys and girls feel it alike, but the boys are less to be pitied, for they can usually devise means to get away. How could Bree get away? She was the only child. Her parents had not married young. When she was nineteen they seemed almost elderly people, so badly does life on a bleak New England farm deal with human beings. Her mother, a frail little woman, grew year by year less fit for hard labor. The farm was not productive. Poverty, pinch, the inevitable recurrence of the same things to be done day after day, month after month, the same needs followed by the same fatigues, all these Bree had to bear and all the while the child had that love and longing for the beautiful which is part of the artist's equipment, and the deprivation of which is keen suffering. Sweet sights, sounds, smells, all these she craved, 
and could only get in such measure as her daily work enabled her to get them from that world of nature which is the satisfaction of eager hearts to whom all other pleasures are denied the fir wood on the upper hill was the temple where she worshipped there she went with her bible on sunday afternoons with her patching and stocking mending on other days there she dreamed her dreams and prayed her prayers and while there she was content but all too soon would come the sound of the horn blown from below or a call from the house brie brie the men are coming to supper make haste and she would be forced to hurry back to the workaday world harder times followed when she was just twenty her father fell from his loaded hay wagon and fractured his thigh there was no cure for the hurt and after six months of hopeless tendance he died Bree and her mother were left together on the lonely farm, with the added burden of a large bill for doctoring and medicines, which pressed like a heavy weight on their honorable hearts. The hired man, Reuben Hall, was well disposed and honest, but before Mr. Dorset's death he had begun to talk of going to the West, and Bree foreboded that he might not be willing to stay with them. Mrs. Dorset, broken down by nursing and sorrow, had become an invalid, unable to assist, save in the lightest ways. The burden was sore for one pair of young shoulders to bear. Bree kept up a brave face by day, but at night horrors of helplessness and apprehension seized her. The heavens seemed as brass, against which her feeble prayers beat in vain. The future was barred, as it were, with an impassable gate. What could they do? Sell the farm? That would take time, for no one in particular wanted to buy it. If Reuben would stand by them, they might be able to fight it out for another year, and, what with butter and eggs and the corn crop, make enough for his wages and a bare living. But would Reuben stay? Our virtues sometimes treat us as investments do, and return a dividend when we least expect it. It was at this hard crisis that certain good deeds of Breeze in the past stood her friend. She had always been good to Reuben, and her sweet ways and consideration for his comfort had gradually won a passage into his rather stolid affections. Now, seeing the emergency she was in and the courage with which she met it, he could not quite find the heart to leave the little gal to make out by herself. Fully purposing to go, he stayed, putting off the idea of departure from month to month, and, though true to his idea of proper caution, he kept his good intentions to himself so that the relief of having him there was constantly tempered by the dread lest he might go at any time still it was relief so april passed and may and june the crops were planted the vegetables in brie strained every nerve she petted her hens and coaxed every possible egg out of them she studied the tastes of the two cows she maintained a brave show of cheer for her ailing mother but all the time she was sick at heart Everything seemed closing in. How long could she keep it up? The balsam firs of the hill grove could have told tales in those days. They were Bree's sole confidants. The consolation they gave, the counsel they communicated, were mute, indeed, but none the less real to the anxious girl who sat beneath them, or laid her cheek on their rough stems. June passed, and with early July came the answer to Bree's many prayers— it came as answers to prayer often do in a shape of which she had never dreamed miss mary morgan teacher in grammar school number three ward nineteen of the good city of boston came tired out from her winter's work to spend a few days with farmer allen's wife her second cousin 
stopped one day at the Dorset's door while driving to ask for a drink of water, took a fancy to the old house and debris, and next day came over to propose herself as a boarder for three months. "'I can only afford to pay seven dollars a week,' she said. "'But on the other hand, I will try not to make much trouble, if you will take me.' Seven dollars a week! Only think!' cried Bree, gleefully to her mother after the bargain was completed and Miss Morgan gone. "'Doesn't it seem like a fortune? It'll pay Reuben's wages and leave ever so much over. And she doesn't eat much meat, she says, and she likes baked potatoes and cream and sweet-baked apples better than anything. And there's the keeping-room chamber all cleaned and ready. Doesn't it seem as if she was sent to us, mother?' "'Your poor father never felt like keeping boarders,' said Mrs. Dorset. "'I used to kind of fancy the idea of it, but he wasn't willin'. I thought it would be company to have one in the house if they was nice folks. It does seem as if this was the Lord's will for us, her comin' in so unexpected and all. Two days later Miss Morgan, with a hammock and a folding canvas chair and a trunk full of light reading, arrived, and took possession of her new quarters. For the first week or two she did little but rest, sleeping for hours at a time in the hammock swung beneath the shadowing elms. Then, as the color came back to her thin face and the light to her eyes, she began to walk a little, to sit with Bree in the fir grove, or read aloud to her on the doorstep while she mended, shelled peas, or picked over berries, and all life seemed to grow easier and pleasanter for the dwellers in the solitary farmhouse. The guest gave little trouble. She paid her weekly due punctually, and the steady income, small as it was, made all the difference in the world to Bree. As the summer went by, and she grew at home with her new friend, she found much relief in confiding to her the perplexities of her position. "'I see,' Miss Morgan said. "'It is the winter that is the puzzle. I will engage to come back next summer as I have this, and that will help along. But the time between now and then is the difficulty.' "'Yes,' replied Bree. "'The winter is the puzzle, and Reuben's money.' We have plenty of potatoes and corn and vegetables to take us through, and there's the pig to kill, and the chickens will lay some. If only there were any way in which I could make enough for Reuben's wages, we could manage. I must think it over, said Miss Morgan. She pulled a long branch of the balsam fir nearer as she spoke, and buried her nose in it. It was the first week of September, and she and Bree were sitting in the hill grove. I love this smell so, she said. It is delicious. It makes me dream. Bree broke off a bow. I shall hang it over your bed, she said, and you will smell it all night. So the fur bow hung upon the wall till it gradually yellowed and the needles began to drop. Why, they are as sweet as ever, sweeter, declared Bree, smelling a handful which she had swept from the floor. Then an idea came into her head. She gathered a great faggot of the branches, and laid them to dry in the sun on the floor of a little used piazza. When partly dried, she stripped off the needles, stuffed with them a square cotton bag, and made for that a cover of soft sage-green silk, with an odd shot pattern over it. It was a piece of what had been her great-grandmother's wedding gown. Voila! Do you realize the situation, reader? Brie had made the first of all the many balsam pillows. It was meant for a good-bye gift to Miss Morgan. "'Your cushion is the joy of my life,' wrote that lady to her a month after she went home. "'Everyone who sees it falls in love with it. Half a dozen people have asked me how they could get one like it, and, Bree, this has given me an idea. Why should you not make them for sale? I will send you up some pretty silk for the covers, and you might cross-stitch a little motto if you'd like. I copy some for you. Two people have given me an order already.' 
They will pay four dollars apiece if you like to try. This suggestion was the small wedge of the new industry. Bree lost no time in making the two pillows, grandmother's gown fortunately holding out for their covers. Then came some pretty red silk from Miss Morgan, with yellow filicelle for the mottoes, and more orders. Bree worked busily that winter, for her balsam pillows had to be made in spare moments when other work permitted. The grove on the hill was her unfailing treasury of supply. The thick-set twigs bent them to her will. The upper branches seemed to her to rustle as with satisfaction at the aid they were giving. In the spring the old trees renewed their foliage with vigorous purpose, as if resolved not to balk her and her purpose. The fir grove paid Reuben's wages that winter. Miss Morgan came back the following June, and by that time balsam pillows were established as articles of commerce, and Brie had a munificent order from a recently established decorative art society for a supply of the needles, at three dollars the pound. It was hard, dirty work to prepare such a quantity, but she did not mind that. As I said, this was some years since. Brie no longer lives in her old home. Her mother died the third year after Miss Morgan came to them. The farm is sold and Brie married. She lives now on a ranch in Colorado, but she has never forgotten the fir grove, and the memory of it is a help often in the desponding moments that come at times to all lives. I could not be worse off than I was then, she says to herself. There seemed no help or hope anywhere. I felt as if God didn't care and didn't hear my prayers, and yet, all the time, there was dear Miss Morgan coming to help us, and there were the trees, great beautiful things, nodding their heads, and trying to show me what could be made out of them. No, I never will be faithless again, nor let myself doubt, however dark things may look, but remember my balsam pillows, and trust in God. End of A Balsam Pillow